0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. As with all the Gospels, John's great concern is to show us who the Lord Jesus is. He begins by telling us that he is the Word become flesh. He is God with us God manifested in the flesh and his aim in telling us this is as he says if, towards the end of the book that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and so we come to chapter 3 there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews this man came to Jesus by night and said to him Rabbi Rabbi How can these things be? Jesus asked and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who has come down from heaven that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this morning is taken from the chapter from which we read the gospel according to John, chapter 3 and verse 7. Do not marvel what I said to you. You must be born again. You must be born again. Our Lord's words still go forth, and they still go forth to all mankind. You must be born again. Some of you, no doubt, have heard the story of George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist, who would regularly t- preach on these words and repeat these words, you must be born again. And eventually, somebody asked him, Mr Whitfield, why do you keep on saying you must be born again? Because... You must be born again. Christianity, you see, is not merely a matter of a change of opinion. Not a matter of what one writes on a census form. It is a matter of a new birth, a new creation. And we see here in our Lord's meeting with Nicodemus, him challenging this Jewish leader. You must be born born again it is not simply an evolution if you will, it is a revolution, you must be born again we see first of all the conundrum of Nicodemus, how can a man be born when he is old we see secondly the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life And thirdly, we see the condemnation and how to avoid it. Conundrum, cross and condemnation. And first we see the conundrum. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. In the previous chapter, we read of the cleansing of the temple. Now, the Pharisees would have been quite impressed by this. The temple was managed by the Sadducees, they were the priestly party, and the Pharisees regarded the Sadducees as compromisers. The Sadducees were people who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed wholeheartedly in the resurrection. The Sadducees were a rich aristocratic group, The the Pharisees tried to be the teachers of the people. They were the people out there, most often teaching in the synagogues. And so Nicodemus, as a, a Pharisee, and it seems a man who was not, at least not overly afflicted by the hypocrisy that became the mark of so many Pharisees, is impressed by this as he would regard him rather rough, rustic teacher. Jesus, of course, has no connection with any of the rabbinical schools. He has no connection with the Pharisees. He hasn't been authorised by them. And yet many of the things he says, he speaks of the resurrection of the dead, he condemns the corruption of the temple, many of those things would strike a chord with a man like Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, we are not told why he came by night. It may have been that he felt that coming by night, fewer people would notice him. It may simply have been that the evening was when he had the opportunity to do that. But anyway, he comes to Nicodemus by night, and he addresses him in, I think, what Nicodemus imagines to be a very fair way. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there's a certain condescension here, but it's more likely the sort of condescension you might have if you had an Oxford-educated theologian speaking to a man in a little mission hall, and the man in the mission hall only knew his English Bible. That's a very good man. But it's still a rather patronising, condescending way of speaking. And he imagines perhaps that now he's going to get into a very civilised, almost academic discussion with this man. He's ready to make allowances. This man is from Galilee. Ready to make allowances. He doesn't have the same standard of education as Nicodemus. And Jesus replies not with, well let's... Get down to a a theological discussion, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He tells Nicodemus not, Oh yes, thank you for recognizing that I am a teacher from God, I recognise that you are a teacher. He says, You must be born again. That what is needed is not simply a matter of an exchange of views and exchange of information, but what is needed is that Nicodemus should believe on the Son of God, that is, on Jesus Christ himself. What is needed is not some slight adjustments, perhaps, to Nicodemus's scheme, to Nicodemus's way of thinking. What is needed is a complete revolution from the inside out, a radical change. Christianity is about a radical change. It is about conversion. You must be born again. It is about going from darkness to light. Now when Jesus uses this language, this phrase, born again, what he's saying in Greek can be understood in two ways and both are intended. It does indeed mean a, a second birth. But there's also the idea of a birth from above. And John very often, John is very good with his use of words. And very often when John uses a word with an an ambiguity to it like this, both aspects are intended. You must be born again from above. That is to say it is a heavenly work. It is a work of God. There must be a work of God in the soul. Only God can make Christians. The church can't make Christians. Evangelists can't make Christians. Only God can make a Christian. It is indeed. As Paul says. One can preach. One sows another waters. But God gives the increase. The church does its work. We go forth. And we share the gospel in various ways. But. But. Only God only God can break the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. God makes Christians. And Nicodemus is startled by this. He's confused. What does this mean? You must be born again. He thinks and he says, how can a man be born when he is old? But it doesn't mean to mean that he's making fun of the Lord. He just doesn't understand. He can't grasp what's going on here. He can't grasp what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. He thinks, as one of the commentators puts it, well, a man is the sum of all his yesterdays. How then is it possible to have this radical change, this complete transformation of a human being? And of course the answer is, humanly speaking, it is impossible. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and the Spirit. Now we are are very clear, we understand what born of the Spirit means. It is that the Holy Spirit does the work. The Holy Spirit changes the person. The Holy Spirit makes a new creation But why is water mentioned here? Well, if you look at the context, of course, the very next section of John's Gospel, the very next part here, deals with baptism. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus' disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. That is to say that his disciples were doing baptism in his name. So he speaks of being born of water And the spirit and then here he is baptizing people who come to him so the obvious understanding of water here is that it refers to baptism that the Christian is baptized we are baptized into Christ Nicodemus would have been very familiar with the baptisms performed by John the Baptist those authorities in Jerusalem and he was one of them, they had sent people out to ask John, what are you doing baptising? So that for Nicodemus to be born of water and the Spirit would have been understood to refer to baptism. Now that's not to say that, that water without the Spirit does anything. Without the Spirit, baptism is just getting wet. There must be the Spirit as well as the water. But the normal The normal thing with a Christian is that the Christian is one who has been baptised. And baptism is a word of God, that God speaks to the one being baptised. If we have been buried with him in baptism. And baptism says you are buried with Christ, you who believe on his name. By water and the Spirit. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That is to say that there is no development from the natural to the spiritual. It's not that a man simply grows up and becomes spiritual. It's a matter that you must be born again. That there is this need of the Holy Spirit's work. It's something, of course, that... The Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself, he can see, he understands. We must work on the basis of what we see. And we must be careful. There have been a number of cases in the last few years of people who have, I mean, one thinks particularly of that awful business in Clapham, with that man who attacked that woman and her children, and that man who seems to have ended his own life. Afterwards, and he had claimed he was an asylum seeker who had failed twice, and he was making a third claim when he claimed to have been converted. And one looks at that and says, "Well, that's a very suspicious bit of behaviour, really, that a man who has failed, and we had that awful case of that would-be suicide bomber in Liverpool who again had made a profession of faith that the. The cathedral there, and the very fact of the, the actions of these men indicate that they were not born again. The Liverpool bomber had Islamic paraphernalia at home that suggested that he was, in fact, a Muslim. And it has been rightly said by commentators that and people in the media that the church needs to be more aware we can only judge of course by what we see but we must understand what we see that there there is a new creation there is desire for the things of god and a desire most of all for the things of god as the things of god not just a desire to to talk theology not just a desire to explore fascinating ideas but a desire to know God more deeply, to know Christ, a love for Him and a desire to know Him more. You must be born again and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot tell, Jesus says, where the wind comes from, where it goes. But you can see, you can hear its effects. And of course, most of you, probably all of you understand that in in Greek and Hebrew, there is a a word play here, because the word for wind can mean spirit, depending on the context. And so, everyone who is born of the spirit, the spirit has his certain effects. It's not enough, it's not simply that somebody says, Quote, unquote," makes a decision for Christ it's more than that it's that somebody comes to love the Lord Jesus Christ and that old things have passed away and all has become new and we see a love of Christ, a love of the brethren a, a determination to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear him when he speaks you must be born again And that power is a power that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. So we come to our second point, to the cross, the cross. Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? How is this possible? And Jesus asked and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Nicodemus was a a leading Bible teacher. A leading theological scholar and he did not know and understand these things. He did not understand what Jeremiah, what Ezekiel means by the taking out of the heart of stone and the putting in of the heart of flesh. He does not understand the new covenant where all shall know the Lord. He should understand because he's got his Bible and yet The teacher, and yes it's the teacher, he has this, in some way, this leading teaching position. But he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, but Jesus does know. Now Jesus here says, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. He is graciously including his disciples here. And in the church it must always be. That those who speak, those who teach, those who preach, are speaking of what they know and testify of what they have, by faith, seen. It is an awful thing when the preacher doesn't have the experience of the grace of God, doesn't know what it is to be converted. John Wesley, when he had gone out to Georgia as a missionary to the Indians came back in depression, really. I went to Georgia to convert the Indians, he said. But oh, who shall convert me? Who shall convert me? Thank God he realised the need and received it. And God can use preachers who don't know what they're talking about. One famous case is William Haslam, who was a minister in the 19th century down in Cornwall. And he was an unconverted preacher. But there were Methodists in the village who were praying for him. And he began to, to preach the gospel though he didn't yet believe the gospel. And one morning in the middle of his sermon he was converted. And the Methodists noticed. And they as old old fashioned Cornish Methodists do they jumped up and shouted the parson is converted the parson is converted a minister must preach what he knows the evangelist must preach what he knows the ordinary Christian witnessing to friends and family and neighbours we witness of what we know and testify of what we have seen That we by faith have known, and by faith behold the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But you, this is one of those places where the, the fact that the English language has lost the ability to distinguish between you plural and you singular is to be regretted because... When Jesus says, you do not receive our witness, he's not saying just you, Nicodemus. He's saying, you Pharisees, you leaders, you people who are supposed to be the the theologians of the people of God. You are not receiving the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it sadly again and again in history. We see unconverted people in the churches, leaders. And they they will not receive the word, the witness of the kingdom of God, the word of Christ. Because they don't know it. And there is a, a pride that says we will not deal with what we do not know. And so it is that many, an ordinary, simple believer, knows far, far better the grace of God than I would suggest the vast majority of Oxford PhDs in theology. The vast majority of doctors of divinity do not know that divinity of whom they are supposed to be experts. But a simple believer who has merely her own Bible knows God better than those men who know all the original languages and who know the Latin and know all the leading theologians but don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one we must know because here is the the only great and true theologian, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the Theologos, the Word of God. He he has ascended to heaven. The one who came down from heaven. He is the son of man who is in heaven. One sometimes gets the question. I've just asked asked it on Wednesday night by a gentleman who came in. He said, well, if, if Jesus is God and he's down on the earth, well, who's in heaven? Well, Jesus here says he's in heaven when he's down on the earth. Our God... How wonderful he is. The son of man who is in heaven. He is the one. Who is our teacher. He is the one who tells us. Of earthly things. And heavenly things. And he is the one. The Lord who came down. With one great purpose. He came to die. As Moses lifted up the serpent. In the wilderness. Even so must the son of man. Be lifted up lifted up in John's gospel when he speaks of being lifted up he is speaking of his death not his ascension but his death he is lifted up there upon the cross we find wonderfully of course those words in John chapter 12 John chapter 12 and verse 32 and I if I am lifted up from the earth Will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. They lifted up the Son of Man and, lifting him up, displayed him there as a curse, accursed by God, but not for himself, lifted up for us and our salvation. What a marvel it is to think. Of Christ and him crucified. In John 8.28 he says. When you lift up the son of man. Then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of myself. But as my father taught me. I speak these things. They lifted him up. Lifted up is he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What A saviour. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him. Should not perish. But have everlasting life. Here is Nicodemus the the Pharisee. And the the very name Pharisee. Meant the separated ones. We are the. We are the separated. We are separated from. And they. What they call the Amhar The people of the land. And they tended to mean by that something rather insulting. This idea that the ordinary Jewish people, even though they were Jewish people, they were somehow unclean. And we separate ourselves. I mean, never mind separating from the Gentiles, they separated from all the other Jews. But Jesus says, God so loved the world. Not the Jews, not the Pharisees only, but the world. All manner of people. In the revelation John is given this wonderful picture of a great multitude that no one could number made up of people from every tribe, tongue and nation under heaven. All kinds of people. The gospel isn't restricted to just one sort of people. It's to be preached to all the world. God's love is not On one little land is to all the world. This is the only place in John's Gospel where we read of God loving the world. And we're so used to it as Christians that we're not as amazed as Nicodemus would have been. God loves the world. The world with all of these pagans, these people who aren't Jews. Yes, God loves the world. All kinds of people. And so we cannot look at any nation and say, well, there's no reason to send missionaries there. We can't look at any nation and say, there's no reason to support gospel witness there. We can't look at any group of people in our nation and say, there's no point in taking the gospel to them. Because God so loved the world. And God's love is seen in that he sent his son into the world. He gave his son. And in that word gave, there is as in that lifted up. It takes us to Calvary. It takes us to the foot of the cross where Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. And we gaze at the cross and we see here, here is the love of God. His wounded hands and feet and side, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? What a marvel, thus we are saved by the shedding of the rich blood of the Son of God, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Would we see the love of God, we come to the foot of the cross and we wonder and we marvel. Again, Nicodemus, the academic theologian, and the academic theologian comes with his philosophical arguments. He comes with his words and ideas, but all oh, far better to come to the cross and say simply, God loves like that. This is how God loves. With the sacrifice of his beloved son. That whoever believes in him, whoever they are, whatever background they come, it doesn't matter. But whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because Christ has come to save sinners. And so we come to our third point too, the condemnation and how to escape it. The Bible teaches us of two comings of the Lord Jesus. It has been said very truly that in the Old Testament it's often like climbing a mountain. And you see what looks like one mountain. Maybe some of you have been to Klangoklen and you have um, climbed the the hill to Dinas Bran, that ruined castle over the hill. That towers over the town. If you go there, you go up this footpath. And as you're on the footpath, initially you think, well, this is just this one hill that goes all the way up the castle. And then you come to what you think is just partway up the hill and you see you have to go down again and then up again. There are two hills. Well, so it is when it comes to the second coming of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it's like being at the bottom Of the road to the castle. And you can see what looks like one hill. And then you realise once you get to the first coming of the Lord. That there's two hills. There's two comings. And in his first coming he does not come to judge the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And the word here is condemn in the sense of bringing the judgment, sitting as judge over the world. But that the world through him might be saved. That is our Lord's mission in his first coming. It is to be the saviour of the world. But also, his coming itself is a moment of judgment. Not of God's judgment so much as man judging himself, man condemning himself. Because he who believes is not condemned. He who believes, who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Christ makes all the difference. Christ makes the division. Here is Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And there's other Pharisees as well. And Jesus now is going to make a distinction ...between Jewish people. Just by existing, just by being there on the earth, he makes that division. Because there's those who believe on his name, and there's those who don't. There's those who look away from themselves and their performances and their works and look to him. And there's those who look away from him and look at their own performances and their own works... And that is the great division it's whether somebody has a a trust in Jesus Christ or not there is very much that masquerades as christianity that is simply about people's works and it depends on what particular variety of error it is what works they rely upon the old roman catholic Monk trusted in his self-flagellations, trusted in his being woken up in the in the middle of the night to go to services, trusted in his wearing the habit of his order, and we see this is wrong. It's trusting in works. There are those today who trust in that they are, but well, they, they have the right opinions They are left-wing enough. They are environmentalist enough. Etc, etc. But none of these accomplish anything in terms of salvation. It's all about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Light has come into the world. He is the light of the world. He is the light. He is God. And the light has come into the world. And the very presence of the light, that is what makes the distinction. The light has come and it shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not, and John uses that word that can be translated, comprehended, overcome. The darkness cannot understand the light. And the darkness cannot overwhelm the light. But the light is there. He is the light. The Lord Jesus Christ is the light. And how people respond to the light. Demonstrates their condition. Do they run away from him? Do they go and hide? Is it like you go into an old, not much used barn in the night. And you turn on the light all the rats go scurrying away into the dark corners. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And those who practice evil often will don't look like those who practice evil. Those who practice self-righteousness, those who look down at others, those who are secretly deceivers, those who are secretly exploiting people, The Pharisee, in his pride, practices evil. And he does not like the light because Jesus points out to him that and shows simply by his existence the problem with Pharisaic religion. And so, the Pharisee loathes him. But the Christian, the one whom God has given eyes to see... Does the truth and comes to the light. Not that his deeds may not that he may be shown to be a wonderful person, but that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Christ is the great divider here. The condemnation is that of hating him wanting something else wanting our own righteousness here is Nicodemus and Nicodemus is this theologian and Nicodemus has before him this great choice will he come to the light or will he stay in the darkness will he come to the light of Christ So that people will look down on him and condemn him and say, What a fool you are, Nicodemus, listening to this bumpkin from Galilee. Or will he go back into the darkness and have all the approval of the Pharisaic world. And live safely and die condemned. Will he go to Christ outside the camp. Or will he creep back into the camp and hope that nobody noticed that he visited Jesus by night? Well, the implication in the gospel is that he went to Jesus outside the camp. He objected to Jesus' execution. He did what he could. And people despised him for it because they always will. Because they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who are God's people don't care about the condemnation of the world like that. Because they understand the great condemnation to be avoided, the condemnation to be shunned is the condemnation that comes from God, from Christ himself at the end of time. God's people are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus. We are right with God and then we do what is right. Christ says you must be born again. That is the the beginning, the sum and substance of Christianity. You must be born again through faith in the Son of God. You must believe on the Son of God. And only those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit can believe. You must be born again. Jesus says. And you can be born again. You can be born again. Because God's spirit is at work in the world. Because Christ has come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here is the gospel. Here is the good news. Here is that. That makes our hearts rejoice and here is that by which we live. Oh, let us cast ourselves on the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.